to the Conduit Street Podcast, the official podcast of the Maryland Association of Counties. My name is Kevin Canale, Policy Associate here at MAKO, joined as always by my co-host, MAKO's Executive Director, Michael Sanderson. Hey, Kevin, glad to be back. And Annapolis is a buzz this week. The General Assembly convened on Wednesday as we record here on Friday, uh, January 12th. Uh, there's a lot going on in town, a lot of pageantry, ceremonies, receptions, Michael, we've been around town, and it seems like everyone is a buzz and excited to be back. Right. It's. I mean, that's that. That's how this goes. Everybody, everybody lands back in Annapolis, and uh, people are already walking around with uh, pieces of paper. This, I've got this bill I'm working on. I'm really looking for your support to try and get co-sponsors. You know, we talked a little bit about legislative process in in a previous version of this podcast, but uh, now that's that's what happens this early part of session. If you're if you're a representative of an interest group, you're talking to sympathetic people and trying to get support and help. Uh, for folks like Mako, uh, we've got an awful lot of issues, and people come up to us early in session. They want to know: Are we going to get support from the county community, or is this going to be okay with you? So that's you know, it's, it's all part of a healthy process. I yeah. Think. So fielding lots of requests, talking to lots of legislators and stakeholders. Certainly a busy week so far, and we do have a bit of breaking news today. Again, as we sit here on Friday. The General Assembly has overridden the veto from the governor on paid sick leave. And Michael, we just talked about everybody was in town. There's pageantry. We're going to work together. And then the first order of business is to override a veto. Right. I mean, I, we, we knew this was coming. Right. I think this this had been pretty well scripted for quite some time. Uh, this is a controversial bill. Uh, it passed on more or less a party line vote during the last session. It got handed to the governor, and he had to make a decision whether to veto or allow the bill to, to become law under his signature. He he vetoed the bill. He said he wanted to come up with a compromise uh, alternative, introduced a bill this session already that has part of what's in what's in this bill, but uh, but not all those same provisions and some other offsets. Uh, the the Democratic majority in both chambers, uh, they had the votes to override the veto from last year. Those votes held. So it's it's not really a surprise that it's gone through this way. Um, we'll still see the governor's bill. It'll get a public hearing. And it, it's conceivable that you could see some attention on some of those new provisions. But the structure from last year's House Bill 1 is going to become law in 30 days from today. Right. So on Thursday, the House overrode the veto. The vote was 88 to 52. And today, the Senate overrode the veto with a vote of 30 to 17. And as you said, the governor has introduced the Paid Leave Compromise Act of 2018. That will get a hearing. So we'll keep an eye on that for you and certainly uh, keep in touch with us for updates there. And Michael, let's start talking now about issues that have showed up on our docket from the federal government. So actions that the federal government has taken That seems to be a major theme as we've reconvened here in Annapolis with the General Assembly. Heard a lot of people talking about 
federal actions that are now going to affect state and local governments. Right. And and, and this has this has kind of become par for the course that, that federal issues are are affecting state and local priorities quite a lot and, and obviously affecting the political scene quite a lot. So we, we know that's going on. But as 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 anyone who's been listening to this podcast knows we've been paying attention to federal decisions on income taxes for a number of reasons because of their effect on Maryland taxpayers, because of their potential effect on things like local infrastructure funding, uh, and then what effect it might end up having on state and local budgets here in Maryland. So all those things are important. Uh, We now have the dust has more or less settled on federal action. They've passed their federal tax reform. And you have a circumstance now where uh, Maryland taxpayers, setting aside the question of which Maryland taxpayers do better or worse on their federal tax bottom line, you have a consequence at the state and local level too. Right. And so we're we're seeing that consequence and there's potential for the state to to get a lot more income. And the question is, what do you do with that income? There are proposals flying around, but it seems like a lot of these senators and delegates want to make sure that Maryland taxpayers aren't hit hard with state taxes. Yeah, so the, the nuts and bolts here are, I mean, no one wants to get super deep into tax policy except maybe you and me. You're right. But um, the, the, the nuts and bolts are there are a lot of people who right now itemize their deductions on their federal tax form. And Maryland is with the majority of states where rather than making everybody go through that process twice, we just piggyback on your federal decision. So if you itemize deductions for for charity or business expenses or other things like that, uh, including things like your state and local taxes, that was a big debate during the, during the, the federal tax reform discussions, um, all those sorts of things are itemized deductions, if you tally up that stuff and it's more than a base amount, the standard deduction, then it serves your interest to itemize those. You fill out the forms, you turn in your receipts. If you've ever, you know, filled out your taxes and done that stuff, that's a familiar process in the second week of April to right. run around doing all these sort of things and gather all your receipts and that sort of thing. Okay, so uh, you, you itemize those items and then they all become tax deductible. Well, one of the big elements of this tax change at the federal level was to make a dramatic increase in the standard deductions, almost doubled for most taxpayers. So as a practical matter, what that means is there's a lot of people who will now take a standard deduction because it doesn't serve their interest to itemize. The the list of itemized receipts won't get to that higher threshold. Right. So that that will certainly affect states and local governments. We also hear some charities that are very concerned that Folks may be donating less because they're not able to write them off because they're just going to take that standard deduction. So it's not just state and local governments. This has far-reaching consequences, and certainly a lot of talk about it in town. Yeah, so I think you've got you've got a you've got a residual effect on on you know, like like you said, tax deductible charity organizations, mm-hmm. as Bill, as Bob Dylan would say. Yes. Um, yeah. But uh, mm-hmm. you know, from, if you're in state government and if you represent county governments in Maryland. There's we're also the tail being wagged by the dog, because here, uh, if a Marylander decides it's not in her interest to itemize at the federal level anymore, I'm just going to take the standard deduction, that decision carries over onto your state taxes. And that means rather than taking all those various write-offs that might have been advantageous on your state taxes, you're going to carry over the decision to go with a standard deduction. And that means more of your tax is – more of your income is taxable in Maryland. So like you said, it's a weird circumstance. Right. A number of number 
of people who may get a, a benefit in reduced taxes at the federal level by going with a standard deduction are going to find themselves with more taxable income in Maryland. That means their state and local taxes would go up unless the governor and the General Assembly come to the rescue and come up with a fix. And both the governor and the General Assembly have signaled that they want to get there. They want to come up with that fix. I guess we'll have to wait and see exactly what the proposals are in order to ensure that Marylanders don't see massive tax increases. And then again, the state would see a a ton more revenue. And then the question would be, what do you do with it? Yeah. And you you also, I mean, you have competing interests here. Uh, You also don't want this to be a bookkeeping nightmare. Mm -hmm. You, You don't want to either have Marylanders filling out a nightmare form to do their state taxes. Nobody wants that. And at the same time, you don't want to saddle the comptroller's office with a massive audit responsibility or something that's really new and administratively difficult to pull this together. So this is going to be a thread the needle exercise. I'm optimistic they'll do something, but we don't even know yet a good estimate on the dimensions, whether this is a $300 $300 million issue or a $600 million issue. So we're a couple of weeks away from really framing this debate. Yeah, we will get an estimate of exactly how much this will be very soon. I know that uh, folks in the comptroller's office are working on that now. There is another element to this, the Children's Health Insurance Program. We've heard some uh, from the General Assembly talk about the nightmare that this could create. The federal government, Congress has let this program lapse. And Michael, I know that we've heard Uh, Delegate Maggie McIntosh say that they are not leaving town until they come up with the fix that will ensure that children in Maryland who benefit from this program aren't going to lose those benefits. Right. It's so it's it's a wrench that's been tossed into what everybody would like an election year session to be relatively smooth and and nobody wants to really tackle a tough controversial thorny issue. Uh, this this there's no reason for this budget year on its on its surface to be a particularly tricky one except for something like this yes. um, and the the looming threat of lots of Maryland kids to suddenly lose lose their their health insurance uh, is something that's really daunting uh, that probably means uh, Maryland will fashion some sort of a backstop you know a, a backstop plan in the event the feds don't come through on this uh, but that potentially either has a question mark or potentially a real serious cost to to, to the budget year which you know which doesn't need a, another big dent. Yeah, so I'm sure most would love to keep their head down in an election year and, as you said, not tackle these very controversial and difficult issues. But stay tuned. We will keep you updated on all of of those federal tax issues and how they have made their way into the discussion here in Maryland. After the break, we are going to get into some election issues. And we're also going to talk about the Kerwin Commission. That is the commission that's making recommendations on education in Maryland and how it's funded. They have released some preliminary recommendations, so we'll get into those right after the break.
And we are back. Kevin Canale here with Michael Sanderson on the Conduit Street podcast. And let's get into some election issues now. Michael, you and I had talked in a previous episode about some of these issues that we thought could be uh, big issues during this session. And it sounds like, at least according to the, the Ways and Means Committee, which held their opening meeting and sort of gave a preview of the big issues they expect to tackle during this session, um, it seems to confirm what we talked about on an episode uh, of an earlier episode of this podcast, particularly when it comes to same-day voter registration and universal voter registration. Right. So this is, I think it's a confirmation of what we suspected, that these issues look ripe. There are a number of states, as we talked about before, a number of states that have already moved in the direction of opening and broadening the voter registration process. Uh, we're, we weren't sure, talking a few weeks ago, whether, whether there might be even, is there a need to do both of these things? But from the sounds of what we heard, the Ways and Means Committee just yesterday had their sort of kickoff, kickoff committee meeting for the, for the session. And uh, uh, Delegate Kaiser, the, the chair of the committee, she sort of did an around the horn, had all the subcommittee chairs talk about issues that they either, either worked on over the, over the interim period or planned to tackle during the session ahead. And th- this is this is one of the things that came up, and w- with some real clarity, mm-hmm. I-, I think I think there's an indication that the committee wants to move forward, probably with both of these ideas. So, what we mean by by same day registration is Maryland, like most states, has has a law that says the registration date is as of X, you know, so X days before election day. That's that's been in place for a long time to sort of let the election administrators get their house in order. So on election day they have a working list. And like lots of laws, this was written around reams of paper and printouts and things of that nature. You wanted to have one good, clean database that you could print out the, the big stretches of paper. I know, you know, for a long time, I've somebody's uh, penciled off my name on a big computer printout of paper. Right, and we've um, seen technology change since that time, obviously. Right, right. so so um, a, a number of states have moved in the direction of making this. Uh, you can walk in on election day. I'm not registered yet, but I'd like to register here. Here's, here's how I'm going to go about doing that, but I live in this district. You demonstrate that, and you can vote that day. Not a provisional ballot, not a special ballot, but you register and you vote that day. And the idea would be that you have these e-poll uh, poll books, right, so that right. you walk in, you register, you vote, and that is automatically reflected in each precinct so that that person then couldn't walk down the street into another precinct and vote again. The idea here is that it would be updated in real time, and that way you wouldn't have this issue that some may bring up that, you know, people could vote two, three, four, five times, and you wouldn't know. So I think I, I think as a policy matter, you've got to clear the hurdle of you're going to have election integrity, that you're, you're, you're not going to end up with people you know, improperly voting or getting registered twice or those sort of nightmare sort of things. That might have been hard to assure 10 years ago with reams of paper. We may have, have, have sort of crossed that that, that bridge with the, with the various technology advancements. So we'll see what, what our county-level election administrators have to say about being able to do this. Mm-hmm. But the fact that a number of states have, have pulled this off and, 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 and you know, life goes on, I think that, that points in the direction that's probably what is giving legislators confidence that we can work that out here in Maryland, too. Absolutely. So we will have to see how it goes. As Michael said, you know, we did have some election integrity questions the past year. So I'm not sure how that plays into this, but 
we'll right. see in the months ahead. Right. And then uh, this this companion idea of either automatic or universal voter registration, uh, it sounds like what, what Maryland may be prepared to do. We haven't seen a bill yet. But it may be something that's happening more at the state agency level rather than at the local level. I mean, Mako's been concerned in the past. There have been a couple of bills that that suggested the local election departments were supposed to mail things out to you know to every voter, and and you know there would be sort of a big administrative burden. It looks like the focus of what Maryland may bring up, and a number of states, other states have done as well, is is sort of capture people when they interact with with the government. So. Mm-hmm. Instead of an opt-in, it would be an opt-out. Right. So so um, potentially we could see either separate legislation on these two pieces or, or maybe one, one consolidated bill. Uh, one thing we noted before is to change the registration deadline requires a constitutional amendment. So it's not as simple as they pass a bill and it's effective this fall's election. They could pass a bill and it would be on the ballot for voter approval by this fall. Yeah, so certainly very interesting issues to keep an eye on, and we'll certainly follow those as well. Next, we'll get into the Kerwin Commission, the Commission on Innovation and Excellence in Education. As we mentioned earlier, this is the commission charged with reviewing and assessing current education financing formulas and accountability measures, and they have reached some preliminary recommendations. Now, the idea here was initially the commission would come back with a final report prior to the beginning of the 2018 session. They have had to ask for an extension. They needed some more time to finish their work. But we do have some preliminary recommendations. The caveat here is that they can't make any final recommendations because they haven't yet costed this out. So all of these recommendations that I'm going to go through, preliminary recommendations, they still have to be costed out. And they're going to work on that during this legislative session, and we expect them to come back with the final report around summer. And and the last few months with this group has been an exercise for us as stakeholders in sort of realigning expectations time and time again. I think maybe even the very first time we sat down to do this podcast, we we're trying to forecast big issues. Mm-hmm. And we, we sat down and talked about school funding stuff and, and all the things that this commission w- was trying to tackle. And I remember you know, talking over these microphones and basically saying, I, I don't see how they can get all this work done by the end of this calendar year in time to have a bunch of bills, you know, and have this be any kind of a consensus product, but introduce bills or, or, you know, big sweeping funding legislation for the 18 session. Then several weeks later, uh, we, we saw Britt Kerwin, the former University of Maryland chancellor, he sort of opined from one of these meetings, it doesn't look like we're going to be able to do this on time. So we may have to work into the spring or later into, into, calendar 19 or in calendar 18. Um, so, so now we've seen some interim recommendations. Uh, some of these are a little stylistic and visionary rather than we want to change the formula exactly this way. But uh, you know, you've, been, you've been attending all these meetings and very plugged in with our education committee leadership. So uh, walk us through some of that. Yeah. So some of the preliminary recommendations, they're framed around five general policy areas. So improving early childhood education, increasing quality in teachers, more pathways for college and career readiness, providing more resources for at-risk students, and more effective governance and accountability standards. Um, one of the, uh, the big issues that has come up time and time again is providing more wraparound services for impoverished areas. Right. That seems to be something the commission is talking about a lot. And again, 
All of this will have to be costed out before they can make their final recommendations, but we do expect a small package of bills to be introduced during the 2018 session as a result of the Commission's work, and that would include, number one, of course, extending the Commission's deadline through 2018, <laughs> improving and funding a teacher scholarship program that is already on the books. Uh, they want to create a career and technical education work group to determine how Maryland can develop a world-class CTE program, expanding pre-kindergarten grants as a stopgap until final recommendations are complete, funding after-school and summer programs for schools with high concentrations of poverty, and increasing training for tutors and providing more resources for struggling students. So, Michael, as you mentioned, a lot of these are sort of, you know, they don't have the fiscal impact yet, so maybe you could say some of this is pie-in-the-sky stuff, but I'm sure that they are going to work very, very hard during this session to come up with the final list of recommendations with pricing and costs so that they can then decide what they want to do, what the fiscal impact is going to be. So we're looking forward to them continuing to meet. They're going to break into subcommittees Mm -hmm. so that they can kind of break this work up because there's so many areas that they need to tackle and look at. But they have done a lot of work, and and these preliminary recommendations are a major step forward for the commission. So, I mean, a lot of this is ambitious, and if if you've taken the time to either attend or or watch the streaming of any of these meetings, they've been you know multiple hour meetings with a lot of conversation with academics and number crunchers and all the various stakeholders who are seated as part of this commission. I, I, I would note a couple of things. I mean, one is the the expansion of services in areas where there's concentration of poverty is, I mean, it, it's something that Maryland has already embraced this generally as a concept, um, as one of the cost drivers in our school funding formula. We have a recognition of that. So Maryland's not starting from, from square one on this idea that there are areas that are harder to reach, you know, because of that particular demographic. So this is, this is not a brand new concept. Um, how do you how do you fold that in? I mean, the idea of saying we're gonna we're gonna try and launch some after school programs or supplemental programs, uh, I think is one way to get at that. Mm-hmm. But it, I, I don't. I think I think you would agree that's that's not the full dimensions of what the commission members seem to have in mind. They're they, they've spent a good deal of time on on that particular you know, policy problem. They have, and I also think it's important to note that. You mentioned the the academics and the consultants that they've spent a lot of time with. In the original consultants report, um, which had those massive numbers that everybody was worried about, right? right, they mentioned that this wasn't really a problem. The concentration of poverty wasn't really a big deal, and that this could be tackled, this issue could be tackled by using the current formulas and just weighting them differently. The commission has really gotten away from that report, and a lot of the commissioners now seem to want to throw that out and maybe start fresh, take some of the ideas, but they don't want to to take that, you know, verbatim. And I don't think they ever have, but I think more so now, there seems to be a lot of of discourse about just putting that aside and not wanting to put their names on that. So I think it'll be really interesting to see how they move forward and how they use that report in their recommendations. But that's certainly a big flip from the initial consultant's report, which said that, look, you don't need to create this concentration of poverty uh, weight, because we can already address that in the current weighting formulas. We just need to move the weights around. So 
as you said, they've talked a lot about this, and it'll be interesting to see how they move forward. Right. And and the, the focus on early childhood education is one we, 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 we've seen this coming. The writing's been on the wall that a, a lot of players in Maryland are anxious to move Maryland ahead on that front to provide much broader access to I mean we're principally talking about pre-kindergarten mm-hmm. and 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 we know that that is a challenge logistically in a lot of levels it's a potentially costly service um, it, it's one that doesn't fit the perfect the, the, the standard mold for K through 12 uh, when you're talking about pre-k there's an awful lot of people right now who are paying for private services whether it's in a school or in a lot of cases at a church, sure. at a house, and and so the idea of finding the space for universal pre-K is a really daunting challenge. Uh, the idea of providing broader access and some sort of public versus family sliding scale on, on bearing the cost for the families who want their kids to be in pre-K services mm-hmm. is a different animal than just Every kid's going to pre-K next Tuesday. You are right on the money. So the commission part of the preliminary report, they recommend that access be provided for all four-year-olds in Maryland and that access be provided to three-year-olds from families that are low income. So three-year-olds starting them earlier for for low-income families. But they recommend doing this by public-private partnerships and in other various ways because, as you said, not only is money a problem here, also just the general space to house all of these extra students. So working with uh, you know, public-private partnerships, working with churches, daycares, different organizations that can take some of these kids where schools may not have the room to get all right. of the four-year-olds and three-year-olds in. But I agree with you 100% about the access piece. I think we need to move away from talking about universal pre-K and talking about universal access to right. pre-K. Right. And that's going to, I mean, that is going to make questions of funding responsibilities a little awkward Mm -hmm. because because kids who are in pre-K programs that are some amalgamated mix of parent contribution and public contribution, that's going to be really difficult to measure in the way we typically fund schools. We do a lot of things based on full-time equivalent enrollment. And do you end up talking about kids in tiny fractions? You know, you know, Johnny's a one-fourth and Susie's a two-thirds. Uh, it's going to get complicated on, the, on that front. I mean, you can do it, yeah. but, it, but it's, 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 it's no easy task. Um, yeah. Certainly not an easy task, right. and, and that's one of the reasons why I think they've had to extend their deadline. But they are going mm-hmm. to continue to work, and we should see stuff by summer. Right. I, I also think um, within MAKO's leadership and within our elected officials, I think – the commission's interest in career and technical education is gonna gonna really strike a nerve. A lot of folks will be really enthusiastic about that. This has been this has been a big push for a number of our leaders. Candidly, mm-hmm. uh, you know, John Barr, com- county commissioner from Washington County, is a real believer. I mean, this is this was the path he took to get into the business world, and he's a real big believer in job readiness and training opportunities. Uh, and I and I think we've got we've got folks all over you know even even both of our uh, the county representatives on the Kerwan Commission um, you know both Craig Rice from Montgomery County and Bill Valentine from Allegheny County would say the same thing that that without these kind of elements as part of a plan you're not serving the whole universe of kids the way you need to and it's all about getting rid of the stigma right that if you don't go to a four year university then somehow you are less of uh, you're less worthy of, of someone who did. 
And the bottom line is that some of these programs, you know, you get this training and you get a job that you're always going to have. They can be very lucrative. And the bottom line, too, is that a lot of kids, this is what they want to do. Maybe they're not cut out for a four-year school, and that's okay. A lot of this is just getting rid of that stigma. And you're right. We have seen, you know, Craig Rice and Bill Valentine have been very vocal about making sure that we install a, a, a world-class CTE program. And that's one of the reasons why the commission is, as part of their work during this 2018 legislative session, they're going to have a CTE work group mm -hmm. to iron this out. So they have specifically said, we know this is a big issue. We're going to make a work group dedicated to this so that we can then come back and give you the recommendations on how we need to to integrate these programs in the state. But 100% agree, uh, not yeah. only, you know, it's not only rurals, it's not only the big counties or small counties. This is everyone seems to agree that this is a big deal and we need to make sure that we have these programs and that they are accessible and that they're world-class. So, so what we have now are uh, a couple sheets of paper with some recommendations and they're in sentences, but not in legislation. Yep. We have work groups that are forming to potentially do some more work, even in the weeks ahead, but it's already the middle of January. Um, you got to think backward from, you know, it's less than 90 days from now that the legislature is going to be done. So do we think it's possible that any of these ideas are actually going to get shaped into bills that'll be ready to be dropped and considered and, you know, and, and, and really digested through the legislative process? I think it's an open question. Yeah, I think so. it's an open question. I do think that pre-K, this being an election year, it seems ripe um, to, to talk about pre-K, <clears throat> excuse me, during the 2018 session. So I think that is something that we could see. Don't know exactly how that would be framed, but I think the issue is ripe. And right. we could also see some stuff with career and technical education um, and some of the things I mentioned earlier that could result from the Kerwin Commission in 2018, but the lion's share of this will most likely be in 2019. And that's where we'll get into the funding formulas and the weights and all of that deep, deep, deep stuff that, that we were, are going to have to dive into and really try and digest. But yeah. for 2018, certainly there's some things that, as you said, it's an open question, but very possible. Yep. Let's get into what's on tap. Michael, uh, next week, we should really start thing, seeing things ramping up in the General Assembly. Committees will start meeting. Folks will be in town. I know that's what you have on tap for us today. Yeah, I mean, as, as we talked about during our little session 101 or our ABC's discussion recently, uh, the, the, the committees are where the real heart and soul of the legislative process happens. We've seen you know, we've seen uh, a couple hundred bills in, in bo each chamber have been have been introduced. Those bills have been assigned to their policy committees, and and you know just today we saw the schedule fill up for the next couple of weeks. So committees are going to be hearing stuff. That means the public gets their input. Uh, the stakeholders get their voice on all these issues, and we'll see you know, we'll see full rooms of of citizens and and, and state agencies and other players uh, in to give their views on all the things pending before the legislature next week. It's going to look like the real thing. Yeah, and so uh, what's on tap for me is the Not Commission. We have talked about uh, the Not Commission report being ready in a previous episode. We've alluded to the fact that we should have it in hand. Um, we haven't seen it yet, and they did come up with some preliminary recommendations. Uh, and this is, again, this is the 21st Century School Facilities Commission. This is not the Kerwin Commission, but this is all about capital and building schools. Um, they don't have the final report yet. We do expect it very soon. I know we said that before, but um, they made some recommendations. They had another meeting where they made some 
adjustments and amendments. And so we're just waiting to see that final report. A lot of folks around town are anticipating the report and, and want to get their hands on it. So I hate to say that's on tap again, but we, we hope to see that next week and, and we'll certainly update you when we get it. Yeah, and that should be a mix. We think those recommendations will be a mix of things that can happen sort of administratively or with some changes in regulations. And, and almost certainly some of that has to go through legislation. So that'll be a more public airing process before the General Assembly. You've got to get broader, broader buy-in for that sort of thing. Uh, but school construction, just the massive stake that that both the state and county governments and the school boards and, you know, candidly the citizens. I mean, the identity of your schools um, is a really big part of what brings communities together. So everybody cares about schools and, you know, the place where their kids learn. Yeah, and strong and smart funding for school construction is a MAKO legislative initiative for the 2018 session. No surprise. We'll certainly be on top of that. That'll do it for this episode of the Conduit Street Podcast. Tune in each week during the 2018 session to hear a new episode and a recap of the week's action. We'll be releasing our episodes typically on Fridays. So until next time, see you soon. 